Disrupting Japan, Episode 49. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. At Disrupting Japan, we usually try to bring you the startup news and insights without the hype. But today, we're going to dive deep inside the hype. Anti Sonyan is the Japan CEO for Slush. One of the largest startup events in the world. Now, some of our American listeners are scratching their heads right now. Slush doesn't run events in North America, but they're a powerhouse in Europe and increasingly in Asia as well. Now, longtime listeners will know that I'm rather cynical about a lot of the cheerleading and rah rah innovation optimism that goes on at these startup events, but they unquestionably do a lot more good than harm. And today, Antti is going to explain the business of startup events. With no cheerleading, well, okay, with only a little bit of cheerleading, Antti walks us through the business model. Who are the real customers? How do these events actually make money? And is this kind of business sustainable when the coming downturn eventually comes? It's a fascinating discussion, and I think you'll learn a lot. I know that I did. So, I'm sitting here with Antti Soninen, CEO of Slush Asia,、uh, advisor to Beat Robo, and a startup founder in your own right. Thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks very much. Okay. And I guess I got to congratulate you just last week. You had the second anniversary Slush event. There were 4,000 people showed up. Yeah, exactly. We had、uh, our second event last weekend. It was a pleasure having you also involved in the stage program. So, thanks for that. Delighted to be a part of it. The event grew from a one day event to two days.、Uh, the attendee count grew from、uh, 3,000 to、uh, 4,000. I'm especially proud of the 400 student volunteers that、uh, helped make it together. You did have a whole army of volunteers out there keeping everyone in line and, and shepherding the crowds to where they needed to be. Later on, I'm going to get back to talking about Slush and the, the business model behind these events.、Mm-hmm. But for now,、uh, I want to talk about you a little bit. Yes. You actually started your own company back in Finland,、yep. which was、uh, Aidbrella? Yes. You'll have to fill me in. It was something having to do with、um, improving the allocation of foreign aid to、yeah. Madagascar. Together with the other co founder, Ilona, we started Aidbrella, a social networking platform for development aid. The original idea for the, that product was. Um, it actually came from Ilona, the other co founder. She had received a grant to build a stove to a village in, in Kenya.、Okay. And she was really excited that she could help. She, she Googled everything、uh, about that village and if, if there's anyone doing anything similar and couldn't find anything. And then once she flew there, she found out that there's actually many other people building stoves there. And there's actually a lot of overlap. In, in those projects. Okay. And, and she was kind of disappointed with that. She spent all that effort, and then, like, not all of it was needed. And then she actually made that in her master's thesis and found out that actually, in development aid in general, there was actually a, a lot of overlap. For example. That makes sense, though, because you've got, you've got communities from all over the world、mm-hmm. who are acting independently, and some are digging wells and、yeah. are putting in stoves or、yeah. building houses. and... There is no central point of coordination、yeah. for it. 
We found out during our project that there's actually two NGOs from different continents who know nothing about each other. They ended up building two elementary schools into a village that only needed one. Ah, okay. And and then there was like vaccinations for some really severe diseases. The same vaccination was distributed two weeks back to back because those two NGOs had had no clue about each other. So basically we were building this kind of like Twitter on a map of like what each NGO is doing so you can see and like collaborate with other projects right. and so eliminate a horrible, over, a horrible over. misallocation of resources. Yeah, and it, yeah, so we wanted to fix that and it started in a, in a hackathon in 2011. We were the runner-up and we got free office space and a grant to build that and that's that was basically my first touch in real entrepreneurship. Well, let me ask you about this because I'm always curious about projects and companies like this because this is a tremendous social good. It's helping a lot of people by allocating these resources better. But is there a business model to this or does it survive on grants and donations? Pretty much all of the team, we were pretty much first timers in in doing startups. Basically what happened is that we failed to raise more money than we were uh, unable to monetize the project. We, we were trying to build this global generic platform for all development aid. And I guess the speed bumps that we ran into were like our own inexperience. What we noticed, for example, that since most of the NGOs rely on donations, attracting investors in the space is a bit tricky because uh, right. you, you can't aggressively monetize because <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very like sensitive topic. If, you, if someone would make a lot of money out of like people who are trying to fix hunger or right something. you've got to keep your margins really really small yeah. so yeah. i think it's still a problem that is worth solving and it's the needs there but but monetizing it and getting that cash flow sounds yeah. like it was the real the yeah real problem yeah i think that's something that a lot of social entrepreneurs face they might yeah. have a brilliant idea they've identified a real problem yeah but cash flow is like blood if you don't have it yeah and it, it's also like I would say that if I would try it now, like I might figure out how to make it sustain itself. You might take another crack at it someday. Who knows? Yeah. All right. <laughs> After you left that company, you joined Rovio of yep. Angry Birds fame. Yep. And that brought you to Japan. Yeah. But relatively quickly, you left Rovio and you joined a local Japanese startup. Yeah. What was going through your brain? Why, why did you make that shift? I joined Rovio because I was very inspired by the growth. I joined when it was 80 people. I left when it was almost 900. I felt like the company was getting a bit more stable and I wanted to try, try my wings at the new kind of a challenge. To build my network, I went to a lot of events and I felt they were like very formal. They were not exciting and they usually had only the same guy speaking at every event. What I was seeing in, in Finland was that the young generation that was building Slush, they were inspiring like legions of other young people. Then there was a company called Rovio, there was a con- company called Supercell. One thing is that actually Angry Birds was using it in its marketing, that if three guys in the middle of nowhere can make the number one app on App Store, like what kind of excuse do you have? Actually, and- this, is, this is something interesting, because I think Finland in particular mm-hmm. has been... For such a relatively small country, both in terms of economy and population, has been putting out a significant number of very successful startups, particularly in the gaming and mobile space. Mm-hmm. Why? Is there, is there some secret we don't know? I'd say that it's a combination of uh, 
excellent education system that leads to a high level of IT literacy mm. and then the rise of Nokia helped build this immense mobile ecosystem in, in Finland where a lot of know-how in on the carrier side on the mobile handset and the application everything in, in that ecosystem was very strong so and there is also a very vibrant demo scene people have been making the most out of different kind of processors competed like who can use this very weak processor to make the best graphics okay and when games went to the mobile device that's when it was the, like the perfect timing for Finnish games industry to flourish because like there was a you know in general it's it can get a little bit uh cold and dark in the in the winter so, so, so lots of time to stay indoor programming so there's no distractions <laughs> like actually actually rich wong from axel partners he comes to helsinki slush pretty much every year when he was asked about santa monica silicon beach startup ecosystem he said that yeah when i compare santa monica and helsinki in november i just feel like it's a lot lot easier to focus <laughs> on building a great product in helsinki yeah. <laughs> so like so yeah okay but then again maybe i mean the events you're talking about there do you think that played a role in inspiring community and galvanizing these people around mobile games in finnish language there is this word that is called uh, talko it's it's basically a, a community effort where everybody works towards a common goal in finland it's u- usually used when someone moves when you move you are allowed to invite all of your friends help you move and the only thing you need to provide as reward is beer and pizza all right also the startup ecosystem in finland has been built in the same way there hasn't been that much interest in trying to make money with events it's more like uh, we have all these startups but very little uh, vc funds so Mm -hmm. the best we can do is try to attract them from other countries so all companies all startups and all successful entrepreneurs they all felt like responsible that if we don't work as a team to get investors from other places here, it's never going to happen. And that's actually how Slush in Helsinki started. Right. And uh, when I came to Japan and I saw these events, these communities that are invitation only, typically not so many young people on stage. It's the Japanese startup scene, it, it is, it's not as open as it should be for sure. Yeah. And um, like it's actually changing now and like we're leading the, the charge there. Let's talk about these events because I yeah. think that like I mean things are getting better. Yeah. But there there's a long way to go. Yeah. So I think most of our listeners are familiar with, if not slush specifically, the Western style of doing startup events. They're very mm-hmm. high energy, there's a lot going on, it's kind of a three ring circus at times. It's it's a production, it's a show. Yeah. Uh, and the content is in there. Yeah. But it's entertaining. Yes. Japanese startup events aren't like that. I was first very flattered to be asked to speak in these events. The thing that I kind of started noticing is that on most panels we always save the world and we always like fixed every damn problem of the startup ecosystem on the panel. Right. And when the panel was done, nothing happened. I mean, what what should happen? Because this is... I, know I, I enjoy events myself, yeah. but most of them are, I'll go, I'll meet some really interesting people, make a few contacts, uh, see a couple of presentations that I find interesting, but not much really happens afterwards. Yeah. So what, what should happen? I feel like, first of all, for bilingual people, foreigners and Japanese, they're all very well compensated. 
especially if you're a countryman. What the Japanese startup ecosystem is mostly lacking is like this connection with the rest of the world. So mm. the people who actually have the ability to start those companies that would break the boundaries of this country, they're all locked up in these country manager roles of, of, of these foreign companies because they get paid so well. I think felt like what this ecosystem needs more is role models. Okay, that makes sense. But with the events again, so the best way to improve them, do you think it would be to make them more, to have more actual entrepreneurs on the panel? Do you think it'd be better to have it more action-oriented? There, there's a few things. First of all, if I were to look at invitation-only events. Uh, yeah, I never, I don't get that. <laughs> invitation-only events are very good for a limited number of people. Uh, what Japan now needs is is more like an, a revolution in the mindset regarding entrepreneurship. And that's not going to happen if you invite you and your buddies into uh, basically a class reunion in a hotel somewhere outside Tokyo. We have this policy that we try to keep the VIP and the speaker areas uh, pretty compact and encourage speakers to uh, to get out and talk. To get out and, and talk with, with people. But that is one thing that is still... It's better than it used to be, but it's still a problem here. Is the Japanese... There's no single Tokyo startup community. There, there's a lot of individual cliques mm -hmm. in it, and a lot of them don't really seem to work with each other. And it's not even like Tokyo. It's like in, in Japan, some of these hotel events outside Tokyo, what... Group X is banned from to, from entering Group Y's yes, event. Yes, yes. And like that, 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 that is, I feel like, uh, I have a, a policy that we're never going to do that at Slash Asia. That works if you're, you're trying to build as much merit as possible for a small group of people. But if you want to create an inspiring community where people feel that they're treated fairly, you shouldn't have that. And it's... I think you make one really good point in that I think a lot of the startup groups here, and this is by no means unique to Japan, but a lot of the startup groups and startup events are focused on building value for the people who are creating it, uh, sometimes even at the expense of the startups themselves. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, last year I went to a demo day from one of the uh, better-known incubators here in Japan that shall remain nameless on this podcast. It lasted three hours. Mm -hmm. Of those three hours, probably 20 minutes were the startups talking about themselves and demoing. The other two hours and 40 minutes was the incubator talking about itself and its mission and introducing the mentors, and, and it wasn't about the startups at all. It was about the organization that was sponsoring it. Yeah. I think that is a problem here. One thing I felt really strongly about, we are going to be a doer's community and we're going to be giving, giving the spotlight to the actual the people making it happen. This brings me to another point, what we are fixing. There's been like recently a lot of talk about the amount of venture capital in Japan being low has raised. It's, it's very small for yeah. the size of the Japanese yeah. economy. What actually happened during my, my beach robot times was that I was approached by a very Japanese venture capitalist saying that they would really like to invest, but they don't, they've only gotten into venture capital recently and they don't know how to do due diligence. So they were asking <laughs> if someone else could lead the round and uh -huh. then they could invest in us. And this happens I, a lot here. 
there's a lot of like these very established institutions who have a lot of money. And many of them are kind of seeing like, oh, there is this Silicon Valley and this startup thing happening. Maybe we should set up a venture capital fund. You're right. Most of those funds are companies deploying excess capital. The number of VC funds in Japan that can actually lead around mm. is very small. People running the funds are ex-bankers, not entrepreneurs. Exactly. And that's, that's a problem. There is some capital. I think the bigger problem is that people don't want to be an entrepreneur in Japan in the first place. Actually, one thing that the Japanese startup press seems to like a lot, they spend a lot of time on covering these 20-something VCs. Yeah. Not, all of, not all of them are 20 anymore, but there's like more more than like... They get a lot of press. Well, and it's, especially, it's, good, it's a good story, right? Of course. Especially in Japan it's, it's where a good finance story. is always run by men in their 60s. To have a 27-year-old out running a fund is... That's, of course, good. Many of these guys are very good at... They go to universities and talk a lot. One time last year, I met this guy who was 18-year-old. I asked him, like, what are you doing here? What's, what brings you here? And then he said that, I want to become a venture capitalist. And I'm like, how old are you? I'm 18. I'm like, mm, okay, uh, why? He said that he saw one of these 20-something VCs speaking at his university. No, high school. And, <laughs> and saying, like, you can become a venture capitalist as well. And like these young VCs, they are especially glorified by people who are in high school have just started in university mm -hmm. and they have no other role models many of them actually uh, aspire to be become investors whereas like <laughs> that with uh, the so, problem uh, the, the well pro i can't really blame it. it's a whole lot easier than actually running your own company exactly but <laughs> if from a look at from an ecosystem level it's actually not good for the ecosystem no. because like if you what japan needs the most is more entrepreneurs yeah. and more big thinking entrepreneurs. Right now, frankly, I believe there's no one else besides uh, Slash Asia trying to encourage into doing that. Okay. Do you think the Japanese startup events, do you think they're getting better now? They're changing quite a lot. There's a lot of events going on. We decided it's going to be all in English. The president of Jetro told that that, that we're crazy and like nobody's going to come to our event. We scored 3,000 attendees. That's uh, right. There was no there was no interpretation or translation at, at yeah. Slush at all, was there? Out of our 4,000 uh, attendees, 60-65% are Japanese. To me, it's like the ideal mix. Excellent. It still feels like a Japanese event, but it's welcoming enough for foreigners. It's... Okay, actually, let's talk about the business behind Slush, the business behind events, because I guess as you discovered in your first startup, having great intentions and providing a great value for the community doesn't mean that you're going to continue. So, yes. so let's, let's break down an audio version of a business model canvas sure. for what Slush and what startup events really are. Who, mm -hmm. Who's your real customer? What are you really selling? Mm-hmm. How, do, how does it break down? To run an event like Slash Asia, in dollars, we're talking about the seven-figure budget to run okay. it all. Roughly, the breakdown of our event currently is something over half of the revenue comes from corporate partnerships, and something less than half comes from ticket sales. Okay, so if your, your customers are split, we'll just say 50-50, between yeah. your corporate sponsors and the ticket holders, mm -hmm. what is the product you're providing each of them. So the ticket holders, I assume, you're just providing a, yeah. a networking experience and a chance to to participate. Yeah. 
So basically, actually, for both, we're, our product is a serendipity platform. Okay. For the partner companies, some companies are looking for, they want to get recruit some of the smartest people. They might be interested in hiring some of our volunteers. But I can't imagine their, their primary interest is, is a recruiting, it depends. recruiting platform. It, it, it actually, mean, actually depends a lot on company by yeah. company. There's some companies who want to join like purely because of branding. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be associated by our uh, event and our community. Uh, some are there because they really want to recruit. Some are really struggling at especially hiring a good piling sales, but also uh, engineering talent. So your sponsors, just so the, the listeners know, so your sponsors include like... Uh, or we actually don't call them sponsors, we call them partnership, okay. partners. Biggest partners? Uh, <laughs> the level of engagement that the, the word partner like requires is so much higher than a sponsor. Okay. With many of our companies, like we build the event together. The biggest partner that we have this year was uh, Recruit. So what do you think they're really hoping to get out of it and you just using them as a typical example well they they participate as the recruit group they have several different companies under them for example the investment part was participating in the pitching contest then they have an hardware acceleration program that was they had a booth it's it's basically we customize it based on on the needs of each company okay i see and we also, one week before the event, we hosted a two, three hundred person hackathon. Mm-hmm. That was also all done all in English. Some good partners there like uh, SoftBank, Japan Airlines. Okay, so the hackathons are also organized towards the partners' needs as well. Then. We, of course, protect the attendees and make sure that they are as, as interesting as possible. It's but, a defi- difficult balance to strike, I'm sure. But we had a track for each of the supporting partners. For example, SoftBank had their own pepper track. Mm-hmm. We asked the participants what track they want to join. So ones that joined the pepper track, they, with the help of, of uh, some uh, technology mentors from SoftBank and other places, they built pepper apps. different. Right. And, and then, for example, in Japan Airlines track, they were building applications for future travel needs. We try to make them as interesting as possible, and then we give it the choice. So for the partners, it really is you're, you are developing a very customized way to plug them into yeah. the startup community here. Pretty much all the other events have like platinum, and gold, silver sponsor. We, don't, we have none of that. Huh. We actually build it company by company. Excellent. Okay, so let's jump to the other 50%. Yeah. The, the ticket sales. So who's buying tickets? So we have a few different ticket categories. We have startup tickets, which is basically young companies that want to get funding or to hire people. And then there's the investors who want to, they want to scan through the latest trends very quickly and they want to also use it for their deal flow. What's the breakdown percentage-wise? How many are startups? How many investors? How many are um, other interested parties? Uh, the biggest uh, single group is mid to large sized uh, companies so it's the biggest oh, really? gr- biggest okay. group is biggest group is not startups the biggest group was either people that were from a completely unrelated big company or then were one of our partner companies so uh, it's just large or mid-sized companies just kind of wanting to check out the startup scene it's that but it's also like recently like many of the Large companies have realized that a startup often will build something new much faster than their own internal lab. 
huh. companies are getting more and more interested in M&A, in, in, in open innovation is the word that every company is currently yeah, talking about. Yeah, that is a huge trend in Japan. Well, it's a huge trend people are talking about. Yeah. We haven't seen them doing it that much yet. Yeah, we had, uh, I think, something like four or five hundred of ticket holders were uh, from the startup side. Okay. So... That's a solid number in Japan. Uh, yeah, in Japan we had over a hundred uh, investors as well. We also had around two hundred uh, media representatives. But yeah, the biggest group is mid to large size companies and then startups. And, and you said it was about sixty forty Japanese versus yeah. uh, foreign attendees. Sixty to sixty five percent Japanese and the rest are foreigners. And the foreigners, I'd say, like half of them are people who live in Japan and half of them fly in specifically. Especially mm-hmm. in our pitch contest, actually. The number of uh, companies that fly in only for Slush Asia is pretty high. It's 30-40% of only those flying in. And actually our pitch contest winner this year, yeah. they came from Taiwan. And I don't think it's a, a wonder at all because those guys have been interested in Japan uh, for a long time. Yeah. But there hasn't been an English-speaking community that includes Japanese as well, mm-hmm. uh, able to kind of receive them. Well, let me ask you this. From a business point of view, mm-hmm. startups are cyclical. They boom, they bust, they bubble. Yeah. They crash. Yeah. <laughs> is this something that concerns slush? The cyclical it's, nature of the business? I always say that if everyone would start their own company, everyone, uh, <laughs> we would be in trouble because everyone would be a CEO and nobody would have any staff. Oh, yeah. But someone's got to keep the lights on. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Just like you said, there's cycles. Sometimes like there's not enough entrepreneurship and sometimes there's too much. Japan, right now, it's getting better, but it's still too much big company driven. Yeah, It is kind of holding back the economy. Uh, Japan has the lowest percentage of people who think that you can learn to be an entrepreneur. So you think that even with the boom and the bust cycle, you think there'll always be enough interest to keep it going, to keep to keep having events, to keep fulfilling the mission? Even when there's a bubble, like uh, when things get overheated, like the best entrepreneurs have probably start their uh, companies then because there's no competition, like when everything has crashed. Yeah. Entrepreneurs are not going to go away at any point. It's just like keeping your finger on the pulse and like every year delivering what the ecosystem needs. But my long-term goal is to get this working without me and, and, and then become what this ecosystem needs is role models. So not people who are just accelerating or investing or like it needs successful entrepreneurs. And so like, you're going to jump back into a startup? Ideally, that's what I'm going to do. Excellent. Maybe we'll have you on the show again once you start that up. That's the plan. Let's change gears for a minute. I want to ask yeah. you some kind of general questions about startups in Japan. Sure. So you've worked a lot with both startups here in Japan and those overseas. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions that Westerners have about Japanese startups? It's not as hard as people think. I think like the foreigners overly like mystify Japan as like a, as, as a too hard of a market to enter. Ah, and, yeah. And, and then uh, also the Japanese are not helping because they're also like I think Japanese are overly mystifying the rest of the world as well. Um, so you think it works both ways? For both Japanese and foreigners, I'd say like the life on the other side of the border isn't as hard as you think. I, I've got to agree with you there. Until you do it the first time, people do tend to think it is much more different and much more difficult and much yeah. more exotic than it really is. The physical borders have already come down, but we're bringing down the mental borders now. So. Uh, you could say that we're working on Meiji Restoration 2.0. 2.0? 2.0. <laughs> yeah. 
Excellent. All right. Listen, before we wrap up, I want to ask you my magic wand question. Mm -hmm. If I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change anything about Japan, uh, the culture, the educational system, the attitude towards risk-taking, to make things better for startups here, what would you change? I think the Japanese currently, many of them... They are very good at glorifying someone and like taking all credit out of themselves, like discrediting themselves. And, yeah. and I, I, that runs I, deep in Japanese and, culture. And I, I believe that looking at all of these Japanese people, I think that they should be a lot more proud of what they have. Not in a like a weird, weird like extreme right way, but I know but, what you mean. Not like arrogant, but just acknowledging that they've done something amazing, they're, 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 taking credit where it's due. There's a tendency to discredit everything that they've achieved, and then and, and they're like, no, it wasn't me. And then mm. you don't succeed every time, but like if you don't never try, you're you're not going to succeed even once. If I take a step back and analyze why that is, I think it's a historical necessity. The Japanese economy grew really fast from the 50s to the 90s. A lot of this paradigm of like improving and making some things better that were in the West and other countries. Problems started in the 19s when you need to stop following and start leading. When you need to start leading, you need to start questioning things. You need to, and as a society, once Japan like figures out that, then we're going to see wonders happen. Well, excellent. Listen, I have no idea how I'm going to edit this down to 30 minutes, but uh, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks so much. And we're back. Now, one of the things I found most interesting about Slush's business model was that the overwhelming number of both the sponsorships and the ticket sales were being made not to startups or to VCs, but to large corporations who were just interested in startups. Economically speaking, the startups are the product that is being sold to the larger companies. Perhaps we are rather exotic creatures to people who have spent their whole careers working for large corporations. Maybe the exhibit booths could even have labels saying entrepreneur in natural habitat. Actually, I don't mean that as criticism at all. Startups and VCs get tremendous amount of value out of events like Slush. But if you're running a business, you'd better be damn sure who your paying customers really are. And Slush clearly has done that, as evidenced by the extent to which they customize their sponsorship packages to meet the specific objectives of their sponsors. And hey, there's nothing wrong with being a product. I was a product at Auntie's Slush event the other month, and he's my product today on Disrupting Japan. Hopefully, you found some real value in it. If you've ever had a good, bad, or utterly bizarre experience at a startup event, Auntie and I would love to hear about it. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 049 and let us know what you think. And when you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Auntie and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.